I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania. I'm Andrew Keats. I'm Scott Lewis. We host the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Every Friday, we break down the news we think you should know in San Diego. Things like housing, homelessness, education, election, political drama, the big stories that dominate the news, and the ones that slip under the radar. We also interview local lawmakers, policy experts, and other investigative journalists. The Voice of San Diego podcast, every Friday. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. From So Say We All in San Diego, welcome back to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast. I am Justin Hudnell. It's part two of the show we began last episode, That's My Jam, featuring stories about the songs that shaped our lives, and today features a bouquet of flowering voices for you, including Delia Knight, David Latham, Katie Haroff, and starting us off, Jennifer Stefanik with her story, New Kids on the Block Rule. Here's Jennifer. All right. Okay. I started to hear rumors. A reunion? An album? It was like they timed it perfectly with my life of wandering the globe, looking for a home. But they are my home. Hearing the official announcement of an album and tour in early 2008 was like being 12 and hearing their voices through my boombox for the very first time. I was consumed. First up was the total replacement of my arsenal of merchandise eBay became my temple, and I went to worship. I had to have it all. My room became a beautiful replica of my childhood. Their faces covered my walls, and shrines built of lunchboxes, albums, water bottles, and dolls flooded my floor. It was breathtaking. I even bought a floor mat with them on it, never to be stepped on. (laughs) My life was like Christmas in July, and August, and September. My friends came to realize that this was not a joke. The possibility of bringing a boy home from the bar was no longer an option, but that was fine by me. I didn't need men in my life. I already had five. (laughs) Danny, the sporty one. Donnie, the bad boy. Joe, the baby. John, the awkward one. And Jordan, the star. As a kid, I idolized Punky Brewster, rocking an offbeat style of mismatched shoes, neon and bows on my chunky body. I had hair permed like a poodle. My brothers called me Fifi. (laughs) Rachel McCool and I were the only early bloomers in our sixth grade class. Puberty hit me like a brick wall, with my chest transforming to double Ds overnight, and the red dot of doom arriving with a vengeance. This womanhood thing kinda sucked, and I was lost. My whole, my whole world changed when I heard, please don't go, girl, on the radio, which was quickly followed by seeing their radiant faces in a glossy magazine. New kids on the block. My hormones blazing, I focused my confused yearnings on this boy band from Boston. Joey McIntyre's blue eyes stared into my soul from the pages of Teen Beat magazine. His voice flooded my existence, blaring from my cassette tape of Hangin' Tough. They had sheets, posters, jewelry, playing cards, fashion plates, dolls wearing street clothes and concert clothes, and of course, the stage. I was hooked on merch from a very young age. I had to have everything. My eating became a little disordered even because I I used my lunch money to purchase teeny bopper mags down at Safeway. When they finally came to town to perform live, my mom would not allow it. She said I was too young. I was crushed and angry. I still have not forgiven her for this. (laughs) After that tragedy, I was allowed to sleep out in line for concert tickets behind the Tower Records. My seats were still up in the rafters, but it didn't matter because I could hear the voices that defined my life and they were in the same arena as me. Freak out! (laughs) I was drenched in my obsession. My daily outfit in middle school was acid wash denim jeans with giant new kid buttons cascading down the front of my legs. A new kid's t-shirt, and of course, a Boston hat, covered in small buttons. Rachel McCool was my only friend and the only other blockhead at my school. We would get in scratching cat fights, watching concert videos in slow motion, battling over who got Joe. I was not cool at all, but I owned it. 
It took three years of crazed lust before I stopped kissing their lips on my walls every night before I went to sleep. I even took down a few posters from my new kid-coated walls and ceiling. I was moving on as they were moving on. Their fans were growing up and kissing boys on real lips. The radio had officially moved on for quite some time. Color Me Bad was singing, I wanna sex you up, to distract us from the fact that the magical moment was over. BT dubs, I saw Color Me Bad in concert four times. I let NKOTB go. I got a real boyfriend who actually kissed me back. But I will never forget my first love, ever. Fifteen years later, I found myself listening to their greatest hits on repeat and joining fan boards online. The possibility of feeling 12 again was too much to resist. The anticipation for new music was the best foreplay I have ever received. <laughs> but what if I don't like it? Am I crazy for spending hundreds of dollars replacing all of my paraphernalia? My pre-ordered album finally arrives and I burrow into my new kid's dungeon, hoarding this moment for myself. Track one plays through my headphones and I'm immediately calmed to the point of a drug-like euphoria. It was them. Each voice so distinct to me. They can do no wrong. I bought three hard copies and the iTunes version. I followed the Nukas on the block on their reunion tour across the United States. Did a couple of dates in Canada and then traveled through Europe, stalking them by myself. I touched all five of them in Cleveland, my first show on the tour, and it just snowballed from there. I was like a 12-year-old with credit cards solo road trips and spur-of-the-moment flights. Lady Gaga was their opening act. I went to shows late. I became a blockhead celebrity. My title? Donnie fucking Wahlberg, girl. Gotta go for the bad boy. He owns the stage with his swagger and charm. Every concert I went to, I held up a sign with my sharpie letters blazing, Donnie fucking Wahlberg. Oh, Donnie. <laughs> he always noticed, and during his song Cover Girl, I would hold it high until he asked me to toss it up to him. I only had the finest of seats. It became part of his performance to hold my sign up on stage. I threw my bra on stage in Denver. <laughs> was handed a towel in L.A., received a kiss from Donnie in Edmonton, and a jersey off his back in Dusseldorf, Germany. In Seattle, Donnie gave me his phone number. Who in their right mind would give a known stalker their phone number? Donnie fucking Wahlberg. I tried to play it cool. And we had a few festive text conversations that I will forever clutch on to. Then I heard some bitch release his number to the masses of batshit crazy fans. And it all came to an end. Sometimes I don't feel like I am a true fan because nearly all of their hardcore fans have new kid tattoos. The most popular one being getting one of them to autograph your body and then going to get it inked for real. I even know a girl named Sandy that has a leg sleeve devoted to them. The reunion has lasted longer than their heyday did back in the 90s. Just last month, I went on my fifth annual New Kids cruise. This is the best four days of my entire year. 3,000 women in their 30s, a handful of gays, and the New Kids on the block take over a carnival cruise ship every May. It costs a fortune. I wouldn't miss it for anything on this planet. The gaggle of worshippers flock to a ship that has been decked out with merch, banners, and a crew that has no fucking clue what is about to go down. We all decorate our doors like middle school lockers and do not sleep for four straight days. 
freaking out over our mutual frenzy for the five guys from Boston. <laughs> they perform their songs, sign autographs, conduct yoga classes, and back rub sessions while basking in the glory of our adoration. I am surrounded by crazy ass bitches. These are my people. This past cruise, John, the gay one, knocked on our cabin door to say hi and take pictures with us. Donnie pulled me in for a slow dance and told me he fucking loves me. <laughs> Joe cried while talking about finishing the Boston Marathon just minutes before the bombing, and he put his medal on for the first time. Danny made us turkey burgers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Jordan, well, looking at him is like staring at the sun. <laughs> These are my cruise wristbands, including the VIP that Donnie pressed into my hand on the Lido deck. I will wear them until they fall off. I love the new kids on the block. They have built a personal experience around the soundtrack of my life. I feel like I'm becoming a little bit more responsible as this reunion gig rolls into its sixth year. They are on tour right now and I am not with them. Well, I, I did go to Detroit and Cleveland last weekend for a couple of shows. <laughs> but lately I haven't been wearing a new kid shirt every single day. I feel like my second puberty is slowly coming to a close and I'm growing up a little, step by step. But no matter where my life leads me, I'll be loving them forever. Because they got the right stuff, baby. They're the reason why I sing this song. Jennifer Stefnick! Jennifer Stefnick, everybody. Next up, Delia Knight performs Needle and Groove. Here's Delia. My brother Jan has a scar above his left eye from where I almost poked his eye out playing Stick Wars. I notice it while we, my brother, my mom, and myself are standing in the Motel 6 parking lot in 29 Palms. It's January, it's early morning, it's hot. Jan is leaving for Iraq in a few weeks and this is goodbye. More accurately, we exchange every euphemism for goodbye. See you soon, see you later, catch you later. Nothing as final as goodbye. We take goofy photos, we crack jokes, and then it is time. The last see you soon. I wave, get in Jan's car, and drive the 600 miles back to my parents' house crying. Waiting through deployment is ordinary and excruciating. It's the ring of a telephone that goes to voicemail, the sound of a doorbell that you're afraid to answer, the ambient noise of cable news talking about troop movements and repercussions of war. It's Sunday mass. Every week, each hung, hymn, each hymn sung through a clenched throat, emotion that fills the muscles so you're barely able to breathe, choking out his favorite hymn, the hymn, Dona Nobis Pacem, Latin for God give to us peace. I pretend I move to tears by the sound of the church choir instead of being worried. This is a sign that something has happened. Something bad has happened. I bow my head to pray, hands clasped so tight my knuckles turn white, and the gentle prayer I was whispering has turned into something more urgent. The prayer that once sounded like a lullaby has turned desperate. It's turned into bargaining and then to begging. Promising to do anything to have him come home before you have any idea what anything means. It's the nights I drink too much in order to quiet my mind. I stumble into bed calculating what time it is in Baghdad by tapping my fingers against the pillow. It's the days when I know I'm singing this song solo because my friends don't understand this type of waiting. The dread, the frustration, the worry, the sadness, the counting down. After the birthdays he's missing, more care packages, more self-medication, I find myself here in a different parking lot waiting the final wait. In his letters home smudged with dirt, he describes the heat, sand, and smell. 
He keeps it light, saying thank you for the care packages, requesting more batteries or fly strips or chewing tobacco, requesting you not send anything that melts because even in winter, chocolate will not hold up. Occasionally, like a hidden track on a CD, he sneaks in, I have so much to tell you. I hope you're ready. I was ready. I've spent the last several months waiting. Waiting is a certain type of music. It's the packing tape sealing up care packages, eager pens scratching against paper, writing a letter every day longhand, which conveys the message better. I love you. I miss you. Stay safe. Not always in that order, but a catchy tune that I couldn't get out of my head. All of the days add up to this moment, standing in a too hot parking lot in the middle of the desert. I'm waiting, standing next to my mom with a homemade welcome home sign, tapping my fingers against the poster board, tapping out the rhythm of my breath that is at odds with my heart, and it reminds me of the first time I sang row, row, row your boat in rounds. We've earned the right to stand in this parking lot, looking forward to the wait because this is the home stretch. This is when waiting finally feels easy. It feels like floating, feels like the start of a road trip, the windows down, a full tank of gas, and your favorite song on the radio. Seven months have turned into moments. Yellow buses with squeaky axles round the corner and all of us, all of us who spent the last seven months waiting push up against the chain link fence. Signs raised above our heads, calling out to the men hanging out of tiny windows. Frenzied yelling of names, tears streaming down faces, boots against blacktop, men piling over the chain link fence, rattling like a tambourine. People falling into one another. The half that is waited and the half that has made the long journey home. Fitting together, finally. When we return home and there is a giant party with more homemade signs, tables packed with food and coolers full of booze. People crowd into our house and backyard. Bone crushing handshakes from men, weepy hugs from women. And I watch him as he's trying to keep time, trying to readjust immediately. He looks distant and uncomfortable, even though this party is in his honor. And I wait for him to pull me aside to tell me all the things he promised he had to tell. People use the word hero, and I watch his face tighten and his jaw clench, like hearing feedback in a speaker. There are men he served with who didn't make it home. And to him, there is no heroism in that. I stare as he sits at the table alone, drumming his fingers, staring at a far off place I can't see. After most of the guests leaves, the balloons float to the ground and the ice in the cooler has melted. Bottles clink together and I wait. I wait for the things that were so important to tell and it doesn't happen. Not tonight, not tomorrow or tomorrow night. Weeks later when the silence becomes deafening and I'm afraid to ask him how he's doing, he asks me to go for a drive with him. He's made a CD entitled Our War. When I ask him where he'd like to go, he says anywhere. Anywhere said like a remedy, an anecdote to the heaviness. I'm listening to The Grateful Dead, Box of Rain, Jimi Hendrix, Little Wing, Radiohead's Karma Police. For a minute there, I lost myself. I try to decipher a meaning out of the lyrics. He spends most of the ride out to the coast, staring out the window, and I drive. Silent. I wait for the words, wondering what he has seen. Finally, the breaking waves are visible from the highway. It dawns on me that this is his story. He couldn't find the words, so he found the music. These songs explain long nights on patrol, sandstorms, breakups, bad ones, real fucked up ones. Songs about saying goodbye, songs to remember, and songs to forget. Before he was able to arrange thoughts into words, he heard music. In order to understand, to really get it, I had to learn the song. Combat is an experience that's carried off the battlefield. It comes home and infiltrates everything. I became an expert at waiting, and now I had to become an expert at listening. We were the needle of the record player and the groove of the record. In order to play the music, we needed both components. Before I heard him speak of shooting people first, gathering up pieces of his friends' bodies to ship home, the mass graves, I listened. I heard tiny symphonies of his finger resting on the trigger the symbol clash of a 50 caliber round, tearing flesh, shattering bone, and ending life. Now, 10 years have passed and perspective makes any song easier to sing. Now he's married with two little girls. The songs have shifted from Johnny Cash to Yo Gabba Gabba. 
less music to explain the past and more to build a future. Now instead of a gun or a bottle of whiskey or numerous regrets, he holds a ukulele in his hands. He invites me over one night to share a song he has just learned, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. He plays the instrument hard and I wonder if it will put up with this beating. He sings at full voice and when he sings, High above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me. His voice cracks with emotion. I watch his scarred hands, scarred from the sizzling heat of bullet casings. I watch his fingers shake and fumble, knowing the journey. After everything, this is the song we were meant to sing. Ms. Delia Knight. Delia Knight. We've had the pleasure of publishing her work in our incoming print anthologies, and her work can also be found on another podcast we produce of the same name, Incoming. Do check her out, and if you're into veterans, military, family affairs, that would be right up your alley. Next up, David Latham is going to tell you a story that spans the generations. Mr. David Latham. By the time I was 14, I was already over six foot. I was too tall. I was too thin. My nose was too big. I grew my hair long because part of not knowing how to fit in meant going out of my way to not fit in. I needed something or someone to show me how to feel part of something. It was the end of the 70s. Watching late night television, some video show hosted by Tony Tennille. I heard this music and instantly I was under the influence. The sound made me sit straight up on the couch. My foot went into a manic stomp, a manic stomp as the drum hammered out a beat. The guy singing, he didn't look like, he didn't look like any other singer I'd ever seen before. He must have been like seven foot easy. No open suede shirt or macrame pants. He wore a leather motorcycle jacket. His hair was long hanging in his eyes. Not coiffed or that feathered cut that, that was just like in that sticks fit video that I just suffered through. <laughs> Somehow he looked to me like my future. He was Joey Ramone. <laughs> the very next morning, I jumped on a bus for downtown to go to the record store. Looking at the album cover, I thought that Joey could be, Joey could be the drummer or the guitarist, but he didn't, he didn't quite fit the bill of the classic rock band singer. At the time in my high school, if you weren't listening to Led Zeppelin, then you were a fag. <laughs> now don't get me wrong, Led Zeppelin is a good band, talented. But come on you guys, the lyrics, singing about goblins and bubbling cauldrons and goblins and magic what come on <laughs> none of that spoke to me what i did like about this new band that i found was was the words now i want to sniff some glue all the kids want something to do now i want to sniff some glue that spoke to me I started to embrace my new attitude and my appearance. Maybe it was the holes in my jeans, the bad grades I was getting, or the hair in my face that led my father to try an intervention of sorts. After months and months of my dad screaming, I'll keep in mind my dad's from Liverpool. David, you need to cut that bloody hair! <laughs> he wanted to let me know. He was trying to understand his son and guide me through my awkward teen times. My dad asked me if I wanted to go on a trip with him to New York City, just the two of us on a father and son weekend. This was like asking some kid who wanted to be an astronaut if he would like to go to space camp. <laughs> New York City? Of course I agreed, but I said, yeah, Dad, that sounds cool, I guess. <laughs> it was my best I don't care tone. We left upstate New York and we flew into JFK. Our first day was on a Circle Line ferry tour of Manhattan. 
that was highlighted for me by the burnt-out Cadillacs I saw beached on the shores of the East River. The New York City skyline was even more magnificent once you get inside its belly, walking the avenues with my dad, my neck on a constant rotation, looking in every direction for one thing. All I wanted, all I wanted was a glimpse of Joey Ramone in his own habitat. <laughs> maybe he'd be hailing a cab or feeding some pigeons in the park or maybe he's out jogging, I don't know. <laughs> he had to be here somewhere. How hard could it be to find my idol in a city of millions on a father and son weekend? <laughs> it turns out, not so hard. While wandering the waterfront that afternoon after our boat ride, my dad and I were walking along when suddenly I heard a sound I had heard through my stereo speakers at home so many times before. It was a guitar chord being struck with just the right smattering of feedback behind it. Then, a microphone voice of Dee Ramone. Want that, that, pop? Which to me is nothing short. It's like a German soldier launching a grenade. <laughs> like a dog chasing a silent whistle, I took off in the direction of the music. <laughs> I, I must have ran at least two, three blocks before stopping. Suddenly, my face pressed against a graded fence. I pushed my hair back, and I zeroed in on a stage just 100 feet away. It was them. I was beside myself. Wait a minute, how come there's no crowd here? Did, did my dad plan this as a special surprise for me? <laughs> Is this like my birthday Christmas gift? Did my dad pay the Ramones to play while we strolled along the pier? <laughs> Holy shit, this rules. My illusion was shattered when I heard my father running up behind me. He had been chasing me for at least two or three blocks. David, don't you bloody run off like that again! Before I could catch my breath, they left the stage. This was just a sound check they were doing for a show that night. I pleaded to go to the show, but we already had tickets to go to, go to Rodney Dangerfield's that night. That was a good time, too. Me and my dad, we had a blast. <laughs> a blast. Monday morning, back at school, I got a reality check when this kid, looking at my notebook, where I had emblazed Ramon's rule, asked very seriously, who the hell are the Ram Ones? <laughs> now I was only encouraged to get the hell out of this town. By the time I was 20 years old, I ran away to New York City with only one objective. I was going to be a Ramon. It just seemed logical. <laughs> In a crowded bar called Club 86, it's across the street from the Hells Angels Clubhouse. Standing in the distance was a tall shadow, standing like a giant praying mantis. I readjusted my gaze, and the tall, dark figure came into focus. Without, without a doubt, I confirmed it. It was Joey Ramone. And it was this moment where everything else, everything else just stopped. I could no longer hear the loud music blasting through the bar, nor did I even care about the people I was bumping into as I ran within 15 feet of my Messiah, my savior, my goddamn hero. I made myself stop running and take stock of the whole situation because the last thing I wanted to do was rush this guy. <laughs> I took a breath and I whispered to myself, what would Joey Ramone do? <laughs> very, very slowly, I put my elbow on the bar next to him. I let a few moments elapse before even glancing at this guy, the guy that I had spent the last dozen years of my formative life studying on records and posters and every fanzine ever printed. Now, now I'm inches away, fighting for the words to use. In slow motion, I watch Joey's arm reach out to my face, push back my long bangs that covered my eyes, and he said, Hey, my name's Joey, how are you? <laughs> God damn it, I know who you are, I screamed. <laughs> in my head. 
But what I said out loud, oh, my name's David, how are you? <laughs> Joey snapped his finger at the bartender who ran over despite being too busy to get anyone else a drink that night. I sipped my drink with anticipation as to how this is even happening right now. We talked and we laughed. I asked questions and he really listened. We were, we were like a couple of pen pals meeting for the first time. I was totally engaged in epic conversation about everything. I was ecstatic. Joey and I uh, continued our conversation into the VIP lounge of this club. At one point, Joey reached into his jacket and he pulled out a folded piece of glossy paper. That could only be one thing. Joey asked me if I wanted to do some cocaine. Well, he didn't really ask me. He just assumed that we had this other thing in common. He was absolutely correct. <laughs> the, candle, the candle on the table illuminated Joey's face as he leaned in to do a parcel of powder up his nose. His nose, his nose was peppered with gin blossoms from drinking so much. I tried to discount this because I idolized this man, warts and all. I love this guy. A big burly bouncer in an ill-fitting suit dived in, and with one breath, he blew away the rest of the cocaine into the smoky air. No more, Mr. Ramon, you've been warned before. <laughs> Joey leaned into me and he said, come on, David, we're getting 86 from Club 86. <laughs> it was 4 a.m. in New York City, and there's still plenty of shit you can do in this city. Joey made a suggestion. Let's go to save the robots. Pretty soon, we're surrounded by girls in this new club. And what does Joey do? He starts telling these girls, oh, hey, this is David. He's in my band. <laughs> I could have died right there. Died really, really happy. We left the club, me, Joey, and two French girls. We headed back to my place around the corner. At my apartment, I had Joey sign all my Ramones posters in my room. <laughs> I was here, I really was, he wrote. <laughs> without, me asking, without me asking, Joey gave me his phone number. I realized how kids feel when they get sponsored by the Make-A-Wish Foundation. <laughs> Maybe they get to play catch with the Yankees. This was a great time in any kid's life that ever heard music that made them feel 10 feet tall and alive. Soon I found something else that I thought made me feel 20 feet taller and, and, and barely alive. This is the same year that I began my romance with heroin. Soon, all the things in my life that mattered got diluted into a syringe, my, my friends and my family. The worst, thing, the worst thing a junkie does, and they do a lot of shitty things, is that while I might be getting this euphoric high, some of the time, my family, they got nothing. I get numbed, and they get it with zero anesthetic. And my dad took it the worst at times. I became a textbook example of what, what you don't want your kid to be. My stints in jail were really the only place where at least my dad knew I was safe. I sat on the bunk thinking about the last conversation my dad and I had where he said, you're not welcome here anymore. I don't wanna see you. This is, this is after him giving me too many second chances. The day came and it did, and I did manage to get clean. And there's a lot of things you do. <laughs> there's a lot of things you go through to get your life back, and there's a lot of things I started to do again. The first one was I started to listen to the Ramones again. That's what you got to do. <laughs> I started to play the drums again. I ran a marathon in a Ramones t-shirt. Because <laughs> you got to do things like that. I even got married, and I insisted on having a Ramon song played as we walked down the aisle. <laughs> that marriage didn't last, but... <laughs> but the sound of the Ramones in a church chapel was fucking cool. Yeah. 
last summer, my dad got cancer. And I don't, think, I don't think we were on the best of terms when I heard this. And it wasn't like this magic piece came over us just because I got clean and, or because of the C word either. I would, I would go with my dad to his chemotherapy appointments a few times a week. My dad's illness progressed and my assistance was needed more each day. One day, while going to his chemo, I heard my dad say something really inappropriate in a crowded hospital elevator. Did that bloody doctor even speak English? <laughs> now I learned how to laugh and not get embarrassed by my dad because my dad could do whatever he wanted to. He's not perfect. He'd done a ton of right stuff for me. He's great. As the cancer got deeper, his need for my help, it, it really grew. And my dad has always been a tough guy. The Nazis bombed his house during the war. He's always been a tough guy, and he's, he, he wasn't always receptive to admitting his, his pain or his defeat. And then my dad needed heavy narcotics to ease his, his, his body and, and his pain. And I never imagined my past apprenticeship with, with, with drugs and syringes would ever be beneficial for, for anything until somebody, somebody you really love needs you. I could do that. I could help you with that. I became my father's pain reliever, not just through do dosing him with morphine, but through my opportunity to hold his hand. Well, he looked in my eyes, and I felt, I felt forgiven for everything. Never felt so comforted. In the, next few, in the final few days of my dad's life, he noticed me in my Ramones shirt. <laughs> I wear it all the time. And he said to me with the utmost sincerity, I want a bloody Ramon shirt too, David. <laughs> if you were to ask my dad just two facts about what he knows about me, he would say, well, David loves the Ramones and he loves his bloody dad. Ladies and gentlemen, the ineffable David Latham. David Latham, everybody. Finally tonight, Catherine Haroff and her piece, Weak. Here's Katie. Twas the summer of 92. My nine-year-old brain and body had initiated the period of my life I like to refer to as the years my raging hormones took over any inkling of rational thought. A time when a young potential suitor would glance at me from across a crowded lunchroom whilst eating his or her packed PB&J lunch, and I would belong to them for all eternity. A single-parent household would mean that my summers were spent at a YMCA daycare center in Columbus, Ohio. Here I would play freeze tag, paint with my fingers, and pretend that any of the friendships I was making would last longer than the week. One particular lunch period, I became engaged in a singing competition with a little bitch named Lindsay Lucio. <laughs> the Lion King soundtrack was playing on repeat on a counselor's boombox, and we were particularly obsessed with the song, The Circle of Life. We were attempting to pitch perfectly recreate the African introduction and were recruiting our friends to vote on who was the better singer, thus who would begin their destiny as the next Bette Midler. <laughs> Lindsay, proving to be the massive super cunt I knew her to be, <laughs> sabotaged my chances of winning by bribing our cohort with extra cookies her mom had packed her, probably just for this situation. My lunch was lacking anything bribe-worthy, so it was a landslide defeat. Casey Cooper, the daycare heartthrob, moseyed over to our little competition and had remained silent until the very end of the voting-slash-bribing period. It wasn't until I received an epic defeat that he chimed in. I don't like cookies, so I'll vote for Katie. And just like that, he was gone. And so was I. Lost in the pool of the blue or brown or green color of his eyes. 
swimming in his wheat-colored hair. I think it was wheat or auburn or jet black, whatever it was. It made my nine-year-old heart palpitate. He was my dream man. He was the one. He didn't like cookies, so he voted for me. Every week, the YMCA would pile all of its summer daycare kiddos in a big yellow bus and take us to various entertaining establishments throughout the area. We would visit skating rinks, mini golf courses, and amusement park parks. 100-plus children ran amok in the public with five to seven employed teenagers who attempted to safely herd us away from child molesters and oncoming traffic. <laughs> It was a great time to be a child. <laughs> One Friday morning, we were on our way to the Wyandotte Lake Amusement Park. I was particularly excited about this trip because I had a plan. One of the rides at Wyandotte had been coined by the other kids as the makeout ride. I wasn't entirely sure what making out entailed, but I knew that I would strategically plant myself next to Casey Cooper throughout the entire day to ensure my rightful spot next to him on every ride possible including the illustrious makeout ride. Come hell or high water, Casey Cooper would be mine. <laughs> Everything started so well. <laughs> I boarded the bus and found my seat directly behind Casey at the window. I could see his ear between the crack of the seat. <sighs> What an ear. <laughs> It looked soft and almost as though it was wanting for me to whisper things into it. I had no idea what to whisper or if it would hear me, but I thought perhaps that it would be the right time to implement a brainwashing technique I had invented at this moment. I whispered words like hand-holding and kissing and make-out ride with me thinking that this would have some sort of power, mind control over him. And then THE song came on the crackly bus radio. THE song that had perfectly managed to express all of my nine-year-old emotions for Casey Cooper, SWV's Week. I shivered. Does Casey feel the electricity between my lips and his ear? Does he know that for the past several days I sang this song while dry humping a pillow pretending it was him? <laughs> so I started to sing along. My seat partner inched away from me slowly, asking, what are you doing? As it became more apparent that I was directly crooning the 90s ballad into a seat crack in front of me. I told her to shut up and kept going. I get so weak in the knees, I can hardly speak. I lose all control and something takes over me. <sighs> Song lyrics had never meant as much to my nine-year-old heart as they did in this moment. If only Casey could hear me. If only my brainwashing attempts would work. If only I understood anything about hormones or boys, maybe I would have stopped acting like a crazed little idiot and could have enjoyed my life just a little bit longer. But then he spoke to me. Once we arrived at our destination, the man of my dreams turned to me and said, were you singing earlier? <laughs> I wanted to scream. Yes, of course I was singing. One must sing when faced with such a soft, supple, adoring ear as yours, my love. <sighs> Singing is the least I can do for you, my darling. But instead, no, what are you talking about? And after one confused glance, he was gone. Discouraged, I bounded off the bus to continue with my plan, always be next to him. Oh, and oh, I was. I followed that unsuspecting boy around the park with a gusto that the most experienced stalker would admire until we were at the ride. The makeout ride, and yes, my friends, we were indeed seated next together. Why have you been next to me all day? <laughs> Casey asked as we boarded the two-person car that provided ample privacy from our mates and counselors. I have no idea what you're talking about. I was not good at the art of seduction. 
I hadn't even heard of the word seduction. This was infuriating, and now my time was almost up. We sat in silence for a minute. I started to feel all hope slip away, all opportunity to make my move, to enfold my destiny of becoming Mrs. Casey Cooper, when a glimmer of hope sprung up as he uttered, you know they call this the makeout ride? <laughs> Much to my chagrin, I responded, what? Ew, that's gross. <laughs> I don't think it's gross. You don't? No, I think it's cool. Oh. And then it was over. <laughs> we looked at each other, and I knew in that moment that Casey wanted to make out with me, I think. Right? Didn't he? Was he smiling at me? Should I just kiss him now? Should I just jump on him and hump him like my pillow? <laughs> What the fuck am I supposed to do now? <laughs> we left the ride and I wanted to weep. I missed my chance. It was lunchtime and we all sat under a tree in the park. I watched Casey eating his lunch with his friends in silence. So close, so far. <laughs> Unwilling to let it go, I came up with one final fleeting attempt, a letter. I would take out a piece of my Lisa Frank stationery <laughs> with the hearts and unicorns on it, something I had been saving just for the occasion, and I would write the love letter to end all love letters. Dear Casey, I like you. I think you are very good looking. I wanted to make out you on the train ride, but I was scared. If you want to be with me and make out with me, or whatever, let me know, and you can be my boyfriend. You would be a very nice boyfriend. XOXO, Katie. I included my number and instructed him to call me. As lunch wrapped up, I ninja my way over to the boys' abandoned things and slid my note into Casey's Animaniacs lunchbox. Sealed with a kiss. The rest of the day was a blur. Park, ride, snacks, bus. I was seated further from him this round, but I still managed to get a good glimpse of the crown of his head. I stared at it, looking for clues, for any indication that this was a man swept away with a moor. It was hard to tell, but I was, help I was hopeful. When we arrived back at the Y, our parents were waiting for us and there was no time for socializing. A response would have to wait until the note was discovered. That night, I dreamed that Casey and I were riding in a hot air balloon. We kept touching each other's ears, and at one point, we were hugging ferociously. <laughs> I woke up, humping my pillow, confused and disoriented. Casey's name still on my nine-year-old lips. I spent the weekend sorting out my feelings, which for some reason meant lying in a sunbeam next to a window in my room, singing every power love ballad I knew. At one moment, I was on my second verse of George Michael's father figure. And my mom poked her head into the room. Honey, I need to talk to you. What, Mom? God, I'm busy. Well, I just got off the phone with a boy's confused parent. Apparently, you left a note in a lunchbox. Oh, no. My plan. I hadn't factored in the undeniable truth that lunchboxes go to parents to put lunch in. Casey wouldn't even open his lunchbox once it was empty, and now my beautiful note was in the hands of someone's parent? And now my parent knew everything? Everything. I died. I sat in front of my mother and I turned into a ghost. All I could utter was, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, honey, that doesn't explain how they got our phone number. I don't know, Mom. God, leave me alone. <laughs> honey, I just wanted you to know. Apparently, you left the note in the wrong lunchbox. You meant it for someone named Casey? Apparently it went to a boy named Todd. <laughs> but is... <laughs> but is father 
wanted me to let you know that you have very nice handwriting <laughs> and very good spelling. I ran out of my room screaming and hid in my backyard until it was time for dinner. My mom avoided eye contact with me and allowed me to wallow in my own embarrassment without further commentary. I never again tried to make my move on Casey Cooper. I stuck to singing competitions and freeze tag for the rest of the summer. I wish I could say I learned my lesson. But then Michael D'Amico, <laughs> he came into my fifth grade classroom, asked me where I got the construction paper I was drawing on. And let's just say, I was a goner. That was Katie Harris. That was Katherine Haroff, and that is part two of Vamp, That's My Jam. Before Catherine, you heard from Jennifer Stefnick, Delia Knight, and David Latham. Make sure to subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you have not done so already. And if you would, please leave us a rating and a review. For God's sake, it helps others find us so much, which is the whole point of this community, is it not? If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get in touch, upcoming live shows that you can be a part of, or your mother, or your dog, well, not your dog, but someone else you know, Anyway, pop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. It has all the info there if you just look for it. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Jennifer Corley is So Say We All's program director. Joe Hudak is our production manager. And Brent Hanafy is our social media manager. All the music you heard was provided by the inspired Kurt Conan of AMFM Music, with the exception of our outro music, provided generously by 1032. Support for So Say We All is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Preface Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We would love it if you would become one of those supporting members for as little as $8 a month and get the whole host of benefits that come with it. Just pop on over to sosayweallonline.com support and peruse to your fit. Thanks so much for listening. Don't be a stranger and let's talk again soon.